All right. Well, good morning. Um, it's funny. I had that little joke earlier this week with a few people that this will be the very best sermon that I've ever given. And um, that's true. However, it will be the worst as well. So hang on. Um, so we're going to be reading uh, from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, and we're going to read on through chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, if you need a Bible, you'll find one under the seat in front of you. Um, in that Bible, we can turn to page uh, 967. So in this section of Scripture, to give it a little background, um, 2 Corinthians... Uh, is, of course, Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And in his first, um, he uh, spoke to the, the Corinthians regarding their unity and uh, struggles that they've been having within the church of uniting together um, as a church body. And here in Second Corinthians, he's doing somewhat of the same thing, only this time he's asking that they would unite with him. Uh, Paul calls his believers to be uh, unite once and for all with each other and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's work in the church has also been undermined by some opponents that, that have made claims and some false teaching, and all this needs some correcting. So in 2 Corinthians, his first uh, first thing that he does if we break the book into parts is he's calling them uh, and commending them for the work that they've already done uh, since his last visit. And then um, he's explaining the gospel ministry and what one should do to minister the gospel appropriately. And then following that, there's encouragements to holy living and then finally, there's instruction for giving. So in chapter 6, uh, which is a section or area within the book or the letter that um, has to do with holy living, is where we are going to find ourselves today. So if you would, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. And it says... Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then in the first verse of chapter 7, it says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, we um, just ask you, Lord, to open our hearts and our eyes 
that we would uh, see the workings of your word in our lives. Father, open our ears that we would understand and have uh, just an opportunity to hear from you, gain knowledge from you, and to help us to serve you in your mission. Father, that we might worship you and glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in a recent article I had read, the headline said, The State of New York is Experiencing a Measles Outbreak. And like California, uh, the New Yorkers are, are planning to revoke the rights of anyone to refuse a vaccination. Um, this, and this reminded me, this article reminded me of a time as a kid um, where, I guess, basically I was uh, involved in the illegal activity, uh, at least in some states, the illegal activity of not taking vac- vaccinations, and, but yet getting the chickenpox on purpose. I know, crazy, right? <laughs> um, just a rebel, my mom was. Um, and so mumps, measles, and chickenpox were com- commonplace among young children before the advent of the MMR vaccine. These viruses were so common that parents would facilitate their children being infected so as to build the immunity for their children. Now, they call it a pox party. I didn't know that, but the article says so. Um, And that's what apparently they called it. And as a seven-year-old, I remember being stuck in this room with my older brother and sister for what seemed like weeks, just brutal torture. Um, And this torture was actually being administered by my mom. Now, I don't recall it being much of a party at all. I can say with confidence, though, that if you had no desire to acquire the chicken pox, then that room was no place for you to be. See, these viruses are highly contagious. If you have any contact anywhere near a cough or a sneeze, um, you're most likely infected or going to be infected, unless, of course, you have had this virus in the past. So wisdom would dictate that you separate yourselves from being around these and those people that are infected. So as Christians, we are commanded to do the same. We are to separate from those infected by sin and darkness. Now, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, exhorts the Corinthians and us to live in a way that we do not connect and or have close spiritual contact to the world. So how, how is this done? I mean, we live in and are a part of this world. So how, how then do we navigate being among them but not being a part of them? And more specifically, why must we live in a way that is such a struggle and sometimes an offense? So in Paul's opening point in verse 14, he, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this is no suggestion. Paul is saying, do not. So ultimately, this is a command. So what is Paul saying when he uses this term, unequally yoked? The word yoked is the same word used in Deuteronomy 22.10. And in the law to the Israelites, God commands that they not plow, 
with an ox and a donkey yoked together. They are obviously com not compatible animals. They have different pull strengths. Their gait is different. The way that they walk, their speed in which they travel is different. Their manner is different. An ox is a lot more docile, if you will, than a donkey. Very stubborn. Probably heard the term, stubborn as a donkey. There will always be a tension going on between these two animals, and the reason why is because they don't have the same natures. It's like trying to tie a dog and a cat together. It just doesn't work real good. So if you think of it, though, having these natures and such a difference, making them yoked together is either logical or irrational. Paul is using this image of these animals to make his point. You, as Christians, me, are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Just as God gave the Israelites his law to make his people distinct, Paul commends Christians for the very same reason. We are, not, we are to be a people that is distinct and set apart from the world. Paul is pointing out that there are major contrasts between believers and non-believers. We have a secular worldview, and we have a Christian worldview. There will always, between the two, be subject to tension. We may have some likes that are the same. We may have dislikes that are the same. We may live and work in the same areas. But ultimately, our natures are not the same. There will be tension, and no matter things in common are going to actually change that. See, Paul is stressing the point that believers are separate and distinct from unbelievers, and he is giving extremes to illustrate this difference. So, brothers and sisters, because you are the temple of the living God, you must live in a way that reflects it. In verse uh, verses 16, um, 14 through 16, I'm sorry, Paul asks five separate rhetorical questions. And, that, and those, those questions highlight that we need to do the opposite of what we've just said and live yoked together as Christians. We need to live yoked together in partnership, in fellowship, in accord, in sharing, and in agreement. So in verse 14, the first portion of that verse, it says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And the answer is obviously none. They're opposing principles. But through the gospel, we are made righteous. We are no longer of this world, but live in a partnership with Christ. As such, we are compelled to change. We're no longer under the control of sin. We live with it. We deal with it, but we are no longer under control of it because of Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Then at the end of that verse, it says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So in the second half, of verse 14, it says, What fellowship has light with darkness? Again, the answer is none. They are mutually exclusive. 
So in the state of Missouri, there are over 6,400 caves. And if you've lived in Missouri very long, chances are that you've been on a cave tour. Now, on the cave tour, there's, um, there's some things I think that pretty much all these tours do. And one is they take this group of people, the tour guide takes a group of people down into the cave and they travel a good distance away from the opening. And when they get there, there's, a, there's some sort of a clearing where all the people can stand, if you will, under this cave with, you know, and it's fascinating to see the rock formations and all that sort of thing. But then suddenly the tour guide reaches over and turns out the light. And it's at that moment that I really needed to go to the restroom. No, I'm kidding. They, <laughs> It's dark. I mean, it is so dark, it's like unnerving dark. Dark enough that you can't see your hand in front of your face. But then the highlight is the tour guide lights a candle. And the candle from that, that one light from that one little candle flame illuminates the entire area. I mean, the light completely extinguishes the darkness. And it's quite amazing to see. And then they turn the light out, or blow the light out, and suddenly you're back in pitch darkness again. But this, this gives an image of the fact that light and darkness are mutually exclusive. One cannot exist where the other is. In John 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come to the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So in verse 15, it says, What accord, or other translations, harmony, has Christ with Belial? And Belial is another word for Satan, but literally, that's, that, that is translated as the worthless one. So all the way back in the garden, Satan has been at work to undo what God has done. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you shall surely die. And then Satan comes along to Eve and says, you're not going to die. God's hiding something from you. He's withholding something from you. And since then, all manner of lies have been told by the worthless one. In Revelations 12, it speaks of Satan as the great accuser of the church. And until the Lord casts him into the pit, he's going to do that. He's going to accuse the church. He's going to accuse you. He's going to and has accused me. He's spoken lies to us both. But Jesus has come to destroy the lies of Satan. And Jesus came to defeat sin and death forever. And we know this because his last words were, it is finished. In verse 15, it also says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. But this is often where we as Christians run into some problems. As a Christian, we are sinners just as the unbeliever is. But through the gift of the cross, our natures are no longer the same. And we can love them as a neighbor, and we're called to do so. The problem comes when the separation that should exist 
is ignored. And the distinction between what is God's and what is Satan's is minimized. So I'm sure that you know of someone who has drifted from among the body of Jesus Christ for this very reason. So we as Christians are spiritually from different worlds than unbelievers. We're set apart by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So in verse 16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer, again, none. So so then, what is it to live as God's temple? Well, first of all, in the Bible, the temple was the location of the God of all creation. It is where he resided. The temple was the very dwelling place of the Lord God. So we are to live with this idea in mind. We are the very dwelling place of God, and God will have no agreement with idols. Any idol that attempts to be before God will be brought down. So, and the temple was also a place where sacrifices were made to God. And in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says that we should be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So, I, I don't know about you, but um, I found, found myself many times in an occasion of chasing after idols. Um, and, and this is something that, of course, I created. And I made attempts to uh, place that with more importance over my Lord. This never goes well. Um, I have an issue, of course, with approval. I like the approval of men. And when I place that above the approval of my father, things are not going to go well for Bob. So in thinking about all of this, the first thing that came to mind was um, in the gospel project in the mornings in our quip hour recently, uh, we went through a story in 1 Samuel 5. And in that story, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant uh, in a battle with, Isra- with the Israelites. They fought. Philistines won. They took the Ark of the Covenant, which is customary among polytheistic religions and or beliefs at the time was if there's a God to be had, you grab it. And because the more gods you got, the more powerful you are. And so... They took this ark, which is basically the representation of the God of Israel, and they knew that the God of Israel was powerful. I mean, they'd seen and heard the stories of the Red Sea uh, opening up and the entire Egyptian army being destroyed, wandering through the desert, and then uh, Joshua and Jericho, and just the, the successful campaign of invading into their promised land they were well aware of all of this. And so I'm thinking that they, when they left with this ark, they were pretty giddy about the fact that they had this God in a box. Well, their custom was that they take that ark and then they place it in a temple of their own. So they go back to a city 
And they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. The next morning, the priests come in to do the priestly stuff. And um, they find Dagon face down in the middle of the temple with the Ark just sitting there. So I find it interesting that they don't freak out just at that point. But they take this God and they set him back upright. Um, And then the very next morning, they come back and the god Dagon is again on the floor, but this time its head and its hands have been severed. And so from that point forward, it just gets worse and worse for the Philistines. So the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines. They had tumors and death. Every place they sent that ark, because they're trying to, like one place would say, yeah, we've got to get this thing out of here. They send it off to another city. Then we get more tumors, more death. They moved it on about five different places before they finally said, look, we need to send this back to those Israelites. And so that's what they did. But what it points out is the fact that wherever God dwells, there will be no other gods before him. So, believer, because you are the temple of the living God, you must live in a way that reflects it. Live yoked together in the commands and promises of our Father. So from the second half of verse 16 through verse 18, Paul uses a mosaic or a collection of Old Testament scripture uh, pieced together, if you will, to prove what he has previously stated. In verse 16, he writes, We are the temple of the living God, and as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. As a people of God, you are called to live separate from the world, distinctly God's possession, separate and set apart for his service. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, go out from their midst. And in some translations, that is worded, come out from their midst. So Paul, again, commands Christians to leave the things of this world and once and for all, separate from it. Now, we're instructed to not be conformed to the world, but to live in the struggle of coming out. Also used in verse 17 is the word touch. And with this word, uh, there's the idea of taking hold of something or being influenced by something. And so there are many things in this world that as a Christian we ought not take hold of. An improper relationship, uh, a questionable business transaction maybe, excessive partying, uh, or gossip, just to name a few. So coming out from their midst isn't easy. It is a struggle. And it is a struggle I know I deal with often. Uh, I don't know about you, but again, I found myself in and around conversations and or situations that I recognize at the moment that I ought not be there. I ought not be a part of this. And there is a struggle that goes on because, again, that old idol of mine, approval, doesn't want to do or say something that's going to shed a poor light on me in the eyes of men. But I have been commanded to be distinctly God's own possession. And so, 
We need to understand who we have become and where the power to come out comes from. It doesn't come from me. It comes from my Lord. So if I were not distinctly God's possessions, I would be smack dab in the middle of those conversations and situations all the time, seeking the approval of men and not of my Father. So in verse 18, being sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty makes us the children of the King. And with that title, there comes great responsibility. Just one chapter back in 2 Corinthians, it speaks of uh, being an ambassador. And as ambassadors, God is making his appeal to the world through you and me. And as children of the God Almighty, we're called to be ambassadors for his kingdom and to live in such a way that we represent him. So, believer, because you are the temple of the living God, you must live in a way that reflects it. Lived yoked together with Christ Jesus. So finally, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. Now this would exclude pretty much everybody. Because defilement, defilement literally means to be pure and to be unblemished. It would exclude us all except for the fact that we believe in the one that is without blemish. It is only through Christ that we receive the righteousness and holiness given at salvation so that we can stand cleansed of all defilement of body and spirit. And so with these gifts imputed to us through Jesus Christ, we are able to be the temple of the living God. And I don't want to leave you with any sort of a wrong impression here. Uh, there is only one thing that makes our natures, those of the believer versus the non-believer, makes our natures different at all. And that is the gift that only comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have done nothing. But because of what he has done, we owe him everything. So now we need to get back to the pox party. Um, finish that story up. My brother and my sister and I, we were absolutely miserable. However, we were allowed the freedom to eat uh, what, pretty much whatever we wanted. We watched television all day long. Mom was at our beck and call. At any other time, this would have been heaven on earth. But... Uh, we, we were not truly free. Which is crazy considering that we never had this kind of freedom before in the house I grew up in. You didn't just eat whatever you want. You ate all of whatever was put in front of you, basically as the way I was raised. <laughs> but thinking about it, I realized that this, is, this was my life before Jesus called my name. As I'm sure that was for you as well. 
I had the ability to do whatever I wanted to do. But I was trapped. I, I had no real hope. I was trapped in this world of darkness and lawlessness and idolatry. And I was a prisoner to the very things that I thought were making me happy. But in that room, after suffering for days, the door was finally opened up. And I could step out into the light of day. I was a different person, free from the effects of chickenpox forever. I had been cleansed, and I now can be around it, but not be affected by it, because I had been given this cure. So, believer, you are no longer infected by the darkness and lawlessness and under the control of sin and Satan. Through the cross and our King, Jesus, you are a child of the Lord Almighty, and you have been given power through the Spirit to be the temple of the living God. So because you are the temple of the living God, you can live in a way that reflects it. In conclusion, uh, in verse 17 and 18, it tells us that God gives us commands and also promises for those that he calls. Separate yourself from the world, and you will be sons and daughters of the living God. So if you're unsure or you have questions before you leave today, get answers. There will be someone in the back of the sanctuary who will be glad to talk to you, more than willing to pray with you. Because of the work of the cross, God has made a way for you to know him. Repent of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He serves no idol. He has conquered all sin and death. He's obedient to his Father. And he is the light of the world. So friends, in this life, as a temple of the living God, you will find struggle. You will be an offense to the world. But we have found victory in our King Jesus Christ. Live as one, no longer bound to the world and emulate your Savior. Live as the temple of the living God. Let's pray.